Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the New Testament book of John. So I invite you to please turn with me to John chapter 3, where I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. If you don't have a Bible and are in need of one, uh, need of one, I invite you to please grab one of those Red Pew Bibles in front of you and follow along as I read. Again, John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you, should, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with, with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever loves lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. If you're wondering why we're in John 3, the answer is quite simply because as if you were here during the announcements, we're going to start preaching through the book of Revelation next week, and I didn't want to start that new series on Labor Day weekend, and since that is in many ways one of the least familiar parts of scripture to many of us, I thought it would be appropriate to spend time in one of the most familiar chapters of the Bible to many of us before we dive into that. So let's pray and turn to God's word. Father, we come to you as your people, pray that you would be with us now. We study your word. 
pray that you would speak to all of us sinners as we sit under its authority, convict us and call us to repentance and life. Be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So one of the most impactful preachers in probably all of history was named George Whitfield. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but in many ways it was his ministry, along with that of the Wesleys, that started the first great awakening in the colonies. And um, because of the nature of preaching in George Whitfield's world, um, he would travel from town to town all over the UK and the US preaching because there was no way to record him, no way to distribute the sermons. And not even just on Sundays, he would like, oftentimes every day of the week, it would be ride to a town, everyone gathered there, preach there, spend the night, ride to the next town, everyone gathered, preach. And naturally, if that is how you have to do the preaching thing, you're not preaching a brand new sermon every day. And so he would return often to a few texts, and most often to this text from John 3, and preaching to people that they must be born again. It is estimated in his, um, in his preaching ministry that he preached on this text more than 3,000 times. And one of his biographers near the end of his life, asked um, Whitfield, he said, how did you do that? Like, how could you preach, you know, you must be born again, John 3, like 3,000 times and still be passionate and excited and engaged and feel like it was valuable. And according to the biographer, Whitfield leaned forward and looked at him and said, well, it's simple. You must be born again. (laughs) That language of being born again is common in our day. All of us have heard it in different settings. But it's striking how often, if you ask people what it means, it's not really clear what they think, right? I mean, if you just did a survey of the world, I mean, I don't know, how would people respond? Maybe some people would say, well, born again means that this is like a a particularly emotional kind of person, right? It's the kind of person that like has their hands up in church and comes forward to all these altar calls and weeps and yells hallelujah. You know, they think that's what born again means. Or another segment of the world might say, well, born again is a description of just a particularly morally strict, structured sort of person. This, you know, this approach to things that's very disciplined and very rigorous. Or still, other people think of it as just kind of a social group. Being born again in religious surveys just means that people answer a survey question a certain way. And so it describes people that tend to cluster in certain parts of the country and have certain social and political views. So the world, I don't know that they have a good definition. And even for Christians, if you ask a lot of us, I don't know that we have a clear sense of what it means when Scripture talks about being born again. For some people, it's equated with getting saved. For other people, it's equated with some point where they get really serious about the Christian faith. For still other people, it's just a label for like the church you go to. If you grew up in, like, certain Baptist or Pentecostal churches, you would say, well, I'm born again, and by that you just mean, this, you know, I go to this kind of church. And all of that confusion means that while this is a very familiar passage to some of us and a very familiar phrase, we also need to revisit it and ask, what does this actually mean? Um, how does it fit into Scripture? And then coming out of that, we do also need to ask, given what it means, is this something that we have experienced? Because according to Jesus, the new birth is something that we all need. And so this morning, there's four questions for us, all right? The new birth, who needs it? Why do we need it? Who is it from? 
And then last, coming out of those, what is it? What does it actually mean? So who needs it? Why do we need it? Where is it from? And what is it? All right. First, who needs it? Who needs to be born again? On one level, according to John 3, the answer is everybody. Um, If you look in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you want to see the kingdom of God, which presumably everyone does, then we need to be born again. We all need it. But particularly in this story, the answer in this story is that Nicodemus needs it. Uh, We meet Nicodemus at the beginning of this story, and he's the one that Jesus brings up the new birth to. So who is Nicodemus? Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. So Nicodemus is first of all a Pharisee. And we have negative connotations with that word, and certainly their opponents in some ways of Jesus in the Gospels. But really in this world, Pharisees were just the kind of religious, righteous, devoted people. In fact, if you ask most first century Jews, they would have considered Jesus a Pharisee, right? So Nicodemus is this religious, devout person. Um, And even though Jesus calls out many of the Pharisees for hypocrisy, Nicodemus seems to be a pretty good guy in this text, too. He's respectful of Jesus, he calls him rabbi, and he's honestly asking him these questions. And not only is he a Pharisee, he's part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, which means that he is important, and the Sanhedrin were like the most serious, most devoted of the Pharisees, right? So this guy is a pillar of ancient Israel. He is devout and honest in his religiousness. And Nicodemus is the one that Jesus talks to about being born again. Why? Put simply, because everyone needs the new birth, but apparently the people who need the new birth the most are religious people. And um, I know we haven't defined what being born again is yet in saying that, but that's the first thing we learn, that everyone, but especially presumably people like us here in church on a Sunday morning, are the ones who need it. You sometimes hear people talk about revival, right? You hear people talk about praying for a revival and how we want a revival. And it is 100% true that we should want a revival. And revival is a good thing. But I think a lot of times we have the wrong idea about it. When people talk about revivals, they usually mean that it's something that happens out there. Outside the church to people who aren't Christians. That's, I think, why you people— A lot of times I hear people talking about praying for a revival in America, right? And the idea seems to be that what happens in a revival is that those people out there become Christians, and then they come in, and they recognize how correct we were all along. But in Scripture, revival is something that always happens within the people of God. If you read the prayers for revival in places like Nehemiah 1 or Exodus 33 or Acts 4, in every case, it is a description of something that happens within God's people— when people within Christianity realize that they need Jesus, realize in a sense that they aren't Christians, um, or in the terms of our text, realize that they need to be born again, and then they experience that new birth. And then, yeah, that revival flows outward. That is the, where we get that sense, right? As that happens within the church, then yes, we reach out and love people, and they're drawn to, to follow Jesus. But it starts in here with people within the church saying, I need to be born again. We need to experience the new birth. All right. 
So who needs it? There's everyone, and especially religious people. Second, why do we need it? Why do we need the new birth? Well, verse 5 gives the first part of our answer. We need it because that's how we enter God's kingdom. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, entering the kingdom of God means a lot of good stuff. It means having a relationship with God in the present. It means having eternal life in the age to come. It means being a part of God's people and living as God's mission. And so we want to enter the kingdom of God, right? But Jesus is saying, in order to do that, you have to be born again. We might say, why is that the case? Verse 3 says it a little differently. Listen, it's very similar, but listen to the difference. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So why do you have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God? Answer, because that's the only way you can see the kingdom, to get into it. Without the new birth, you're not even able somehow to behold God's kingdom in order to enter it. A little later, Jesus, I think, explains what he means here. He says that he's the light of the world, and then he says, starting in verse 19, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus is describing this cycle that we are trapped in. He says, I'm the light of the world, I've come into the world, but people do not, cannot in a sense, see me, believe in me, recognize the light, because they love the darkness. Which is to say that we all have hidden, dark, evil in our hearts. We all, um, and importantly when we say that, I don't just mean like Charles Manson does, right? We mean like Nicodemus has sin and darkness and evil hidden in his heart. And left to himself, because he wants to hide in that darkness and cover up those parts of himself, he will not see the light. So there's this cycle that we're trapped in where we cannot see this hope because we are trapped in the love of darkness. And so Jesus is saying that the new birth then is necessary to get us out of that cycle, to make it so that we can, in a sense, see the kingdom of God, see the light that has come. So the new birth is necessary to break us out of that cycle of unbelief. Because left to ourselves, we would stay there. We need to keep in mind that when we say that, there's two types of unbelief, right? There's open unbelief, and then there is hidden unbelief. And we need to recognize that we're talking about both types. I mean, open unbelief is the person who just says, I don't need Jesus, I don't need Christianity, I'm good on my own, I'm going to do what I want, I'm loving life, having a great time. And it is true that that person in open unbelief, according to Jesus, is blind. Now we're going to say something about the hidden people too, but that person is blind in one sense, right? Which is to say that they are blind to the destructive reality of sin. I mean, you can see that in its extremes, right? I have sat with people who are so clearly just exhausted and broken by their sin, who have just so wrecked their lives by their choices, but will insist, like, I'm happy, man. Life's going great. You know, I mean, they're blind to the realities of what they've done. So in open unbelief, um, sin creates that blindness. That's part of what we're talking about when we say they're, they love the darkness, right? They can't see that it's darkness. But in hidden unbelief, in many ways, it's even worse. In the first place, we're still blind in that way. We still don't really appreciate the, you know, the evil of our sin, But the thing about the open unbeliever is that they at least recognize that they're not Christians, 
right? They, they at least recognize that I am, you know, choosing not to follow Christ. I'm choosing not to, you know, to, to believe in him. And so you can at least have a conversation with them about the goodness of Jesus. But in hidden unbelief, you have this second level of blindness, too, where you think that you've arrived. You think that what you have is Christianity, when really all that you have is this hypocritical, graceless half-life of religion. People sometimes talk about problems, why American Christianity has so many problems. And I am convinced that while there's lots of discussions we can have, the main problem for American Christianity is that many of us have never actually experienced that new birth of Jesus. (laughs) We've never actually been delivered from our hidden unbelief. And that is very much Nicodemus' condition. That's why Jesus is pointing this out to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this observant, religious Jewish guy, and he does not understand this other way of life that Jesus is bringing. In fact, you can hear how befuddled he sounds in this passage, and the reason is because Nicodemus has not really believed. He's not really received the light, but he's one of those people that it's hidden in, and so he's befuddled when Jesus starts talking to him about this new birth. He's like, what are you talking about? I don't even understand what this means. All right, so we need to be born again, Because without it, sin blinds us and holds us in prison. And I know some of you are probably bothered at this point and thinking, come on, just define what being born again means, right? And we're getting there, but we're actually going to ask one more question before we do that. And that is, where is it from? Where does the new birth come from? Well, on one level, the answer is going to be really obvious, but listen, because we need to talk about it. It's from God, all right? The new birth is from God and particularly from the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, again, he says, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit. Now, people debate the water part of that. Some people think that's picturing our first birth and water changing for the fluids that come along with that. Um, And other people think that both of them are picturing a second birth and that it's an image of baptism and then the Holy Spirit. But regardless, the Spirit is the important thing. It's the essential part of the new birth. Which is why then he goes on to say in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, meaning Holy Spirit, is spirit. In case that's not clear enough, Peter spells it out. In 1 Peter, he talks about being born again, and he says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right, so we have this new birth from God. Like I said, that's going to sound in some ways obvious to many of us, right? That's the Sunday school, you know, God did it is kind of the answer we're trained to give. So let's talk about what that means. If you go back to John chapter 1, that's actually the first place John talks about being born again. It comes back up in chapter 3. But there he, John says this. He says, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right. So John says we believe and we get this new birth and become children of God. But he contrasts that birth with three things. He says that that means there's three things it's not. First is that it's not of blood, right? And that one I think most of us understand, but we still need to be mindful of it. Meaning, you don't get the new birth because you're born into a certain family or nation. You don't get it genetically. 
right? I mean, in Jesus' day, there were plenty of people that just presumed on the fact, like, I'm an Israelite, I'm born into this, I'm good. And there are still people in our world that think that way, right? Who say, I'm, you know, born into this, my family's Christian, so I'm good. But the challenging one is the next two, where he says, it's also not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Which is surprising, because he's saying it's also not something that we have because we choose it. We're not born again because we choose or decide to be born again. It's from God in contrast to that. And that one might confuse us. So let's talk about it. First of all, there is a choice that we need to make as we become Christians. That is, we believe in God. We choose to trust in God, right? John 3.16, which is part of our reading, it talks about that choice, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So we are called to believe and trust in God for eternal life. But here's what we need to clarify then. We need to say, how does that relate to this being born again that Jesus is talking about? Well, first, some people talk as if being born again and that choice to have faith are the same thing, right? They think of faith and new birth as being the same thing, but that is not what John 3 is saying. They are two separate things, but that's why back in John 1 he stresses you're not choosing to be born again. And in fact, we should note that is why Jesus uses the image of birth, right? Because it is not an image of something that we decide to do, right? Babies aren't like hanging out in the womb and then they're like, well, I guess, you know, it's time to head out. I guess I'm going to get going here, you know, and be born. It's just something that happens to them. So we're talking about two things that are related but are separate, all right? So then the question is, what's the relationship between them? Well, I think a lot of us think that being born again is the result of our faith, that we choose to believe in Jesus and therefore we are born again. But that's not the order that John is talking about here. Um, Let me show you a couple of places where that's true. First, if you look at verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So he's talking about, I'm the light, I'm witnessing to the light, you're not receiving us. But then why? Um, Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Which is to say, Jesus is saying that somehow the problem for Nicodemus is that he's incapable of understanding. He's not, it's not that he, you know, that he needs to make some choice and then get the capability. He's incapable of making the choice to begin with. Or in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus comes not to bring condemnation, but salvation. But importantly, it's not saying there is no condemnation. Instead, here's what he says is happening in verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So he sees that condemnation is somehow pre-existing the choice, except that it's also something that we're all under. And so that begs the question, well, if we're all under that condemnation, but the ones who believe are the ones who are not under condemnation, then how do we come to believe? And again, the answer in this text is the new birth. That's why Jesus is talking about our need to be born again. All right. So then to spell it out, it's not that our faith causes the new birth, but rather in Scripture, being born again is the cause of our choice to believe in Jesus. It is the cause, not the result. Something happens to us from God 
we are reborn, and then out of that, we have faith and are saved and pursue God in Jesus. Let me just show you that from one other passage before we apply it, because that's the thing that people wonder about sometimes. So in Ephesians 2, Paul discusses the same idea here, except he uses the language of <clears throat> dead and alive. You'll see what I mean. In verse 1, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So without God, we in ourselves are dead. And he's saying you. He's talking to these people that now believe, right? Dead people don't make themselves alive. Um, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So while we are dead, he made us alive together with Christ. So that's Paul discussing the same idea of being born again. In fact, he calls it new birth um, la later, that, that this is where God comes and moves and makes us alive. And then therefore, in, starting in verse 8, he says, So by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the point Paul's making is all of this, your faith and your life and your salvation, all of this rests on this work of God, making you alive, giving you this new birth and saving you. And therefore, there's no ground for boasting. Jesus alludes to the same idea in John 3, in verse 21. He says, whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so it's that last part there that's so striking that what's happening is that we are recognizing that even these good works and belief that this person have are happening within the context of God's work. All right. Almost to the point where we're going to define the new birth, right? But just to apply that last little bit, here's what that means. Um, the Bible says we're saved by grace. Anyone who's been around the church knows that. But the problem that we often have is that God's grace in Scripture means more than we appreciate. It means that there's two wrong responses we can have, two wrong views. One is that we're saved just by ourselves. And that's the one, even though we sometimes slip into it, that we all kind of know it contradicts, right? That I just, you know, like I just do all this stuff and God's just sitting up in heaven and I like build the ladder and climb up and get there, right? That is contradicted by being saved by grace. But God's grace in Scripture is also meant to correct the idea of cooperative salvation, which is to say, I do my part, and then God does his part, and that's how salvation works. That is how many people think about it, right? I do my best, and then God makes up the rest. I do this stuff. I believe, and I repent. I try to follow Jesus. And then God comes and says, okay, like, that's good. It's not good enough, but, you know, I mean, I'll be gracious then, and I'll get you the rest of the way. But in Scripture— God's grace is the, er, the foundation of our salvation from first to last. He does not just make up what we lack, but he also gives us everything we have. Let me say that again. He doesn't just make up what we're lacking, but God in his grace also gives us everything that we have. And that is why Nicodemus has such a hard time with this teaching, because he believes in cooperative salvation right? If you listen to the Pharisees, they do believe in some grace from God, absolutely. They believe that he forgives sins, and that, you know, that he's kind, and that, you know, he shows undeserved mercy. But what they also believe is that what Israel's supposed to do is do their part, and then God's grace will kick in and do the rest. 
the foundational to the Pharisees' way of understanding Israel's problem is that if they would just, like, buckle down and start being faithful and start obeying the law better and just trying to do a better job, then God will come in and say, okay, like, you know, then I'll forgive the ways that you've fallen short and make up for it. But um, that is not what Jesus says. He says, oh, you don't need to do all of that. You don't need to cooperate. You just need to be born again, which Nicodemus, of course, thinks, but wait, I can't do that. And that is part of Jesus's point. All right. So all of that brings us to that question we've been getting at from the beginning. What is it? What does it mean when Jesus talks about being born again? Here's the definition I'm going to offer, and then we'll talk about it. The new birth is a supernatural act of God which transforms our hearts so that we trust in Jesus for salvation and begin living in a way that pleases him. So let me read that again. The new birth is a supernatural act of God which transforms our hearts so that we trust in Jesus for salvation and begin living in a way that pleases him. So parts of that are what we've already said, you'll notice. It's from God, first of all, and it has these effects of us trusting in Jesus and beginning to live and follow him. But in the middle is key, it is a transformation of our hearts. A transformation. In the Old Testament, we have a promise of just this transformation. Here's how Ezekiel puts it. And again, this is another analogy for the same thing. He sa- God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Again, notice, right? I mean, a stone heart does not beat, right? You need God to do this thing, and then you have the heart of flesh. And in fact, we should appreciate how every one of those images, we should spell it out, they are transformative, right? When Jesus talks about birth, like, that's, that's about the most defining moment of your life, right? <laughs> in terms of, like, things changing for you. That's a fundamental transformation, When Paul talks about being dead and then being made alive again, like, that's a fundamental transformation of your situation. Um, In in Ezekiel, right, it's a heart transplant. That's a foundational change to you. So we need to recognize that the new birth is describing something transformative that happens to us. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, uses an image, I think, that's really helpful to try to say, here's what's going on with the new birth. Um, He says, imagine a watch. And this is, like, not like an Apple watch, right? This is the 19th century. This is back like a pocket watch, right? And he says, imagine this watch that is broken. Um, There's two things you can do to try to change it. One is you can just change the face of the watch. And that, in many ways, is what religion tries to do, right? It just says, let's try to just change how it looks on the outside and see if that will fix it. But Spurgeon says, I mean, that's what Nicodemus wants, right? But that is not the new birth. What Jesus is saying instead is what you need to have happen is you need to pop out the insides of that watch that are broken, and you need to put in these new, like, gears and wheels and whatever the other things were that were inside of watches. Springs, I think. And then, and, and, and you need to change the inside, and that's the thing that repairs the watch and allows it to work again. It's an internal change that Jesus is describing as the new birth. All right. So that is what it means to be born again. In just a minute, I want to talk about applying that to our hearts. But first, I want to answer one specific question that some people have when they hear that. Um, So one of the things that we get from John 3 is that if we're not born again, we're not Christians, right? We're not truly, you know, from the heart Christians. 
And that can make some of us worry and ask, well, am I born again? And for some of us, the question comes from this place. We say, well, I'm trying to do, I'm having faith and trying to follow Jesus and trying to be a Christian, but this is a work that God does and it's in my heart. And like, what if it hasn't happened to me? Like, how, you know, how do I know? And we can feel afraid. Um, here's the thing. I do not have access to your heart and you don't either in a sense. And so there's a reason that we ask that question. But scripture says, as far as that question, here's how we should think about it. In 1 John, the, John explicitly discusses this. So let me read you from chapter 5. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. All right, now that's kind of, John has this weird circular thing going on in 1 John, but he's saying basically, if we wonder, are we born of God, here's the three pieces of evidence we look for. One, do we have faith in Jesus? Are we believing and putting our faith in Jesus? Two, are we loving those that God has saved and loved, right? You know, we're seeing our love for God and love for others. Are we growing in that love? And three, are we beginning to seek to obey God's commandments? Not meaning, are we perfect? In fact, back in 1 John 1, he just straight up says, if you say you're perfect, you're lying to yourself. But um, are we beginning to grow in seeking to follow what God commands? And he says, in terms of the question we might ask, well, like, am I born again? Like, I'm worried. If you see that beginning to happen in your life, then you should take hope that you are born again, right? Those are the evidences. However, while I mean that to be helpful to some of us who might wrestle with this false sense of anxiety there is something very proper about us asking and examining ourselves in terms of that question, have I been born again? George Whitfield, who we already mentioned, along with John and Charles Wesley, they led that first great awakening, and one of the things that was a part of that first great awakening is that they would have people gather in what came to be called experience meetings. Experience meetings, which does not mean that they would meet together and have an experience, but rather, they were, they were essentially small groups. It's actually one of the original places you see, like, church small groups coming from, of four to eight people who would sit down and ask each other a set of questions about their Christian experience, all right? And the point of those questions was to help encourage people to really be experiencing um, their Christian faith, experiencing the new birth, which is how they thought about it. And I'm just going to read you this list of questions. It is in your bulletin on a little blue sheet. And you can look along. I don't usually just read stuff. But I think that this set of questions is a great thing for us to reflect on in ourselves and to be asking each other. So let me just read them. One, do you have spiritual assurance of your standing in Christ? And how clear and vivid is it? Two, how does the Holy Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are his child? Are you conscious of a growing spiritual light within, revealing more of the purity of the law, holiness of God, the evil of sin, and the preciousness of the imputed righteousness of Christ? Three, is your love for Christians growing? Do you find yourself having a less judgmental spirit towards weak Christians, those who fall, or those who are self-deceived, or even cold to anyone? Or is your conscience growing tender to convict you of the very first motions of sin in the mind, such as the onset of resentment, worry, pride, or jealousy, 
an inordinate desire for power, approval, and material comforts, and an over-concern for your reputation? Are you becoming more aware of and convicted about sins of the tongue, such as cutting remarks, rambling without listening, deceptions and semi-lying, gossip and slander, inappropriate humor or thoughtless statements? Five, do you see signs of growth in the fruit of the Spirit? Can you give examples in which you responded in a new way? with love, joy, patience, honesty, humility, or self-control in a situation that a year or two ago you would not have. Six, are you coming to discern false idols, idolatrous motives for some of the good service you do? Are you seeing that many things you thought you did for God are actually, you are actually doing for other reasons? Are you coming to see areas of your life in which you have resisted the Lord's will? Seven, Are you seeing new ways to be better stewards of the talents, gifts, relationships, wealth, and other assets God has given you? And eight, are you having any seasons of the sweet delight that the Spirit brings? Are you finding certain promises extremely precious? Are you getting answers to prayers? Are you getting times of refreshing from reading or listening to the Word? All right. So those are the questions they would ask each other. And listen to me, because this is important. When you read those questions... um, you are in one of four places, all right? One of four places. Place one, you read them and you're like, sweet, I'm good, nailed all of that. If that is you, then you need to reread them because you are walking in the darkness and are not seeing the truth, all right? <laughs> Hopefully none of you are in that place, all right? The second place you can be at is reading them is you think, you know, I read that and I see some of that. It's really, I see that happening in my life and I see some of that. I also see some areas where it's not happening, or I need to grow in that, and I feel, you know, that, like, I'm in that process, maybe, and if that is you, then, um, good news for you. You have experienced the new birth, and are experiencing what it's like to be a Christian, all right? That is the place of someone who is truly living into the new birth. Um, that does not mean that you don't need to keep growing, because the point of all those questions is to keep growing, But it is appropriate for you to rejoice that God has done this work in your life. Place three, maybe you read those questions and you think, you know, I don't know. Like maybe there's been a time in the past where I felt like some of that was happening, but I don't know that that's my experience right now. And that was actually part of why they would have these groups continue to meet over time and ask each other these questions, is because the new birth is something we should be experiencing in the present. And so if that is you, then spend some time just wrestling with your heart and asking, is this something I've experienced, or is this maybe just something I thought I did in the past? The last place is you might read those questions and you think, yeah, I don't know that that's my experience at all. Like, I, you know, I'm a Christian, I come to church, say I believe in Jesus, you know, I don't, but I don't know that that's my experience of Christianity at all. And if that is you, then friend, you need doesn't matter if you're religious, right? That's the crucial thing to recognize from what we said about who needs it. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church, obeyed some outwardly moral commands, identified in a certain way. If you have nothing of that inward life-giving experience of Christianity, then that just makes you like Nicodemus. And if that is you, then here's what you are called to do. One, humble yourself before God and acknowledge that you can't do it and ask, apart from your effort, is for him to give you that new birth, to let you experience that. 
Ask him to take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Two, believe in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation. So much of what that makes the difference between faith that's born of the new birth and faith that's just born of worldly religion is whether we're still relying on that cooperative salvation or whether we truly believe from the heart that it is all Jesus from first to last, that it is God's grace alone that saves me. Believe in Jesus Christ as your full and only hope for salvation. And then three, start to live out of that transformed heart that God will press into the experience of that new birth. Because God doesn't, God's not going to say no to that sort of earnest, humble prayer. He will grant it, and then you are called to begin to live out of that. And man, if that is an experience you are having as you reflect on these questions, come and talk to me, and we can begin to visit about what that looks like. But do those things knowing that while that new birth comes from God alone, he is eager to give it. And he will welcome you that is the meaning of the new birth. Trying to think of how to sum it all up at the end here, rather than trying to sum up the ideas, I think maybe the best way to sum it up is this. At St. Mary's Church in Everton, Bedfordshire in England, they always have like a lot of names when you're describing where a place is in England, but um, there is this famous gravestone there that belonged to the Reverend John Barrage, who was a minister there during the 1700s and was actually affected by that great awakening. But I just want to read you his gravestone because it in so many ways testifies to the kind of story that we are invited to have. It says, here lies the earthly remains of John Barrage, the late vicar. Vicar means pastor in the setting of Everton. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without the new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716, remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730, lived proudly on faith and works for salvation until 1754, was admitted to Everton Vicarage, meaning became the pastor here, 1755, fled to Jesus alone for refuge, 1756, fell asleep in Christ, January 22nd, 1793. May that be each of our stories as well. God and Father, you're working in us that new birth, drawing us to faith, calling us to salvation. Thank you for the free grace you show us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.